Solemnity of Corpus Christi, John Wayne, American Idol, Rum Runners, and How Your Good Intentions Could Result in Bad Ideas. All on this episode of Awesome Today. Awesome Today is a daily list of things which we find somewhat or completely awesome, that are somehow affiliated with today's date. It is the awesome things we've been introduced to, discovered, or rediscovered. This show is barely edited and sometimes offensive. Enjoy the banter, and have an awesome today. Would you? Hello. Hello. Good afternoon. Is it? Where are we? What time is it? I'll tell you what, it's been, I hope nobody just saw the weird fly that (laughs) flew by my head. There's a fly in here. There's a fly inserting itself into our studio. Hopes to be YouTube famous, just like our children. (laughs) Just like our kids. It's been a busy, busy afternoon. That's right. Your sister arrived. My sister, yeah. Always brings the excitement and mayhem of greeting the Aunt Mimi. Yes. And then, yeah, just a lot of other things piling in, and we're recording at a later hour. That's right. Than normal, and maybe even almost later two hours than normal. Yes. We're committed to the cause. We're a little off our game, but we're going to power through it. Who knows how this will turn out? It may be better than ever, just because we've been forced to do things from a different perspective outside of the rut. Yeah. Yeah. So as, as we'd intimated yesterday and affirmed through... Facebook posts, we're transitioning, not something. I don't know what I was going to say, but we are transitioning. And so there's, we're not getting rid of anything. That's where I was going. We're not getting rid of anything. Absolutely. We're wrapping all the things up in our arms. So we will start out by saying, um, hang on, I've lost where I am in my notes. There we go. Yes. We, ha- we do have a few on Awesome Today. For Awesome Today, we have a few things about the day in general, mm-hmm. of That's which right. you will lead us off. Okay. All right. Well, today is June 11th, 2020. And today on the traditional church calendar, it is the Feast of Corpus Christi, or the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ. That's right. That's a mouthful. That's a long solemnity name. It's a lot to solemnify. Now, again, like I said, this is on the traditional calendar. Those of us who go to um, what's called the Novus Ordo or um, the Mass that is the Mass in the Vernacular. Okay, so Novus Ordo being the new way, I think. Sounds the new order. Just kidding. Don't pretend like that never happened. That's not right at all. Just don't check it and act like it's true. It's not right. I'm pretty sure about that. Anyway, we have a slightly different calendar than the traditional calendar. And so we will celebrate this solemnity on Sunday. Or both. It's a big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. Corpus Christi is celebrated by Catholics worldwide. It is mainly recognized by Catholics. But there are some other groups who do recognize it. Mm -hmm. Um, So to all who celebrate it, and to even those who don't, have a blessed feast day. One traditional observation of Corpus Christi, the solemnity of Corpus Christi, is to have a processional where the priest would take a monstrance and maybe also a chalice with the precious blood. I can't remember. But the chalice for sure would have... We're new at this, okay? (laughs) The chalice for sure would have um, the, uh, the 
uh, body of Christ as we mm-hmm. observe it, as we know it in the host, um, the round wafer that you may be familiar with, um, and do a processional with the congregation, the parish around like the neighborhood. I don't think our priest has done this in the past. I- Not necessarily around the neighborhood, but I do feel like there's been like maybe at least around just the block that the church is on. Okay. Yeah. And I could be completely making that up or not. You'll never know. But I feel like I've heard reference to this. <laughs> um, again, because we're we're brand new at this. And honestly, the first 18 months of being new at a thing, you might forget this would have been the time where we would have really begun to remember and engage differently. And we're in quarantine. That's right. Exactly. We do have one parish friend member who's also a superstar, Stephanie. So she would call us out if we were yeah, off this. Yeah. Hopefully she does it privately. <laughs> privately, please, Stephanie. Yeah. Um, but I love the Feast of Corpus Christi because the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, um, which is, you know, c- completely connected to the idea of the most holy body and blood of Christ, that was such a linchpin for us yeah. in coming into the yeah. church. And so it is a wonderful feast day, and I am happy to be celebrating it. And a feast day that, that both crosses and unifies Old Testament to New Testament. There's, yes. It's not just an off-the-cuff idea. There is such a rich liturgical presence of things. It's amazing. I doubt anybody wants to hear us I know. expound on that at some we point. We can talk more about it. But dang we'll, it, I could. We'll get back on track. Yeah. All right, number two, and this is a slight mention. We'll have two slight mentions here in the middle. Um, June 11, 1979, iconic American actor John Wayne passed away. Um, he, this guy was in over 250 films, predominantly of the Western genre, though there was a little bleed over here and there. The final film, and this is this is something I find touching in a way. His final film in 1976 called The Shootist, he played a legendary gunslinger who was dying of cancer. And while he was playing that, actually John Wayne, he himself was dying of cancer during that time. So... It's it's meaningful and it's a movie I remember absolutely watching as a child. <laughs> I should I really should have pre-read your notes. So you could cry a little. Crying. It's it's Thanks. strong. And there's no or shame that. in crying. There's no shame in crying. <laughs> it's a cryable thing. If I were less of a heathen, I would allow myself to cry. Whew. Okay. I'm gonna try to get a hold of myself because my next thing I wanted to mention is far less sad and actually lots of fun. Yeah. June eleventh, two thousand two. This was a moment in time. I can't believe it's been this long ago. American Idol premieres premieres on Fox. Now that first season is especially notable to me because that is when uh, Kelly Clarkson mm-hmm. wins American Idol. I was teaching at her alma mater, her high school that she graduated from, Burleson, Texas. I was teaching English at Burleson High that year. It was so fun to be part of that community when uh, she was on the show and, and won the whole thing. Now, Kyle asked me before we started recording if I did, in fact, ever get to meet her, and sadly, no. But I know lots of people who do yeah, know yeah. her. So. That's right. got to cling to your... Seven degrees of bacon, however you can. <laughs> all the bacon and all the degrees. Um, I understand that she is a really authentic and really just like just like what you see is what you get with her. And her music has continued to get better over time from her American yeah. Idol premiere, yeah. for sure. I'll even listen to it without cringing. Yeah, good stuff. 
All right. June 11, 1927, and we're all way out of order, and I don't care. Okay. 1927. So this is during Prohibition, right, in the U.S.? No liquor, yes. mm -hmm. if anybody didn't know what that means. No, no liquor was illegal. Right. And you have rum runners, which is basically, so rum comes from the Caribbean. Yes. Which would have then most readily come from the Caribbean up to the Bahamas, which sit off of the east coast of Florida. Once arrived there, then your rum runners would have would have smuggled rum booze over from the Bahamas into Florida to those speakeasies. Well, this particular June 11th of 27 is when a major crackdown oh, no. on that activity was in place. Okay, and along with uh, confiscating in a single week's time over 20,000 cases what? of liquor. Oh which is God. insane. <laughs> I mean, there's to a think party about. right there's there. There's a lot of people drinking during Prohibition, right? <laughs> yeah. But along with that, then only you know, mildly mentioned as an afternote was that they're implicated, not convicted, but implicated and probably should have been convicted, were many politicians and police who were complicit oh, yeah. with that smuggling ring. For sure, for sure. Okay. So, interesting stuff. Rum runners. Yeah. Who wouldn't? I would have. If we could go back, I would do it. All right. I'm shifting notes here. So part of the format change up is that we're going to be less focused specifically just on events in history for this day and kind of bring back what seems like people enjoyed was just what's yeah. big for us today. I mean, like the people who spoke up about it, and I, we truly are listening because we genuinely are trying to navigate, figure out what is this going to look like. So a yeah. couple of people had spoken up and said, you know, I, I really enjoyed just your casual chat of whatever happened in your day, whatever mm -hmm. you're into kind of thing. So, yeah. So yesterday, I feel like, it's been within the last few days. Yeah, I remember it yesterday because yesterday we recorded Friday episode of the main show and made, made the mistake of bringing me on as the guest. My awesome of the day was referencing Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist of some renown and author and other things. And I was, I had listened, I'd run across an interview that he had done with Joe Rogan, and I'm not a regular Joe Rogan listener, but just oddities of the internet and how things work, I'd found that. I had been so intrigued by what he had to say that I felt like, man, maybe we ought to read a book. Yeah. I had spoken about this convictedly enough that Meg agreed. So we thought, you know what, let's read this book together and kind of share our feedback as we go. Yes. Um, and so today... From his book, and now I'm going to have to look up the title if I can find it. Um, the The short title is The Coddling of the American Mind, but I want to get the whole, whole thing, so bear with me a moment. Um, did, yeah, there, there we, we go. Are, there we are. The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation... For failure, which sounds ominous. tantalizing, ominous, all of the things, <laughs> right? Yes. So we, we went through chapter one. Oh, good. My computer screen is not helping us be good podcasters. 
Well, Why is that? I can't get rid of that. I don't know. There. <laughs> there we are okay. then. I'm going to do there. I'm going to trick the system. Okay. He's because he is also an educator and has been for many years. He does the handy dandy thing of providing summation points at the end of each chapter. Yeah. So we thought maybe let's start with a summation point and then we'll kind of talk through how we digested the chapter. Okay. Statement one, children like many other complex adaptive systems, are anti-fragile. Yes. And there may be a number of you who don't know what anti-fragile means. I certainly did not. This is a concept that comes from Nicholas Taleb, or Taleb, however he or you choose to pronounce it, Mm -hmm. uh, wrote a book called Anti-Fragile, also wrote a book called The Black Swan. Both of them are excellent, and you should read them. Um, But this concept of anti-fragile... So, and I believe this is Taleb's kind of analogy or simile or metaphor or whatever to say. A china, uh, a piece of fine china, a cup, a little teacup, if you knock it off of something, it breaks. It is fragile. Yes. It breaks. If you have a plastic cup, like you would give to your child, a plastic sippy cup, if you had children, or like you'd give to a stranger's child if you wanted to get in a fight, um... (laughs) It's resilient. You can yes. knock it off things multiple times and it's not going to break. But right. it also doesn't get stronger. Right. right? It yes. just is what it is. Yes. Anti-fragile, you could equate to our immune system. Yeah. Where if you introduce a stressor at the right level, it isn't going to break. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it can take that stress, assimilate it, grow stronger over time. Right. And that that same phenomenon might apply as well, rather than just to physical things, but to our psyche. Yes. So, children, like many other complex adaptive systems, are anti-fragile. Their brains, and you could apply this to adults as well, brains require a wide range of inputs from their environments in order to configure themselves for those environments. Like the immune system, children must be exposed to challenges and stressors within limits and in age-appropriate ways, or they will fail to mature into strong and capable adults able to engage productively with people and ideas that challenge their current beliefs and moral systems. Yep. So how do you feel about all that? Well, it is deeply convicting to me. And it's a con- it's a continuation of a conversation that we've had many times because I, although I do understand this on a philosophical level, have been one to try to shield our kids from stressors. Mm -hmm. This topic has come up a lot in our house because an ongoing battle is I want the kids to help more with chores around the house. Yes. The kids hate helping with chores and would just rather fall on the ground in distress and sobbing than help. And so I want to alleviate that stress out of their lives. And so I'm like, fine, I'll just do it. And so, and this has progressively gotten worse as our, especially our oldest two children have gotten older. It's not like they've ever had an epiphany where they're like, you know what? I'm not going to live at home forever. I actually need to know how to clean a bathroom and run a load of laundry and clean up the kitchen at at the end of the night. Um, That, that realization hasn't come. It's probably not coming. And so there's been this tension within me where I know that we need to have a, 
you know, the ability to work through it. And yet I swoop in to rescue because their stress, I feel stressed about. Yeah. So anyway, this is, this chapter was deeply convicting to me as I thought about that because it makes so much sense. And and the analogy to the immune system is so Mm -hmm. apropos Mm -hmm. to think about, we have vaccinations because you give to the system a little bit of something and allow the system to adapt so that it can, when it, the next time it encounters it, it's strong enough to deal with it. It's like getting the flu shot. Yes, of course. Or any of the other immunizations. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. He provides in the book an excellent, from the physical perspective, an excellent example. He talks about when they were in the process of taking their youngest child into the public school system and that before their child could set foot on campus for kindergarten, that the parents had to go in for a meeting and the, the bulk of the meeting was basically just instruction to say any nut product peanuts, almonds, whatever, anything of nuts or anything made in a factory that has nuts, don't bring it on campus. We're all concerned. And he'd he'd asked the question because he was looking at this long litany of things that they can't do. And he was like, well, it's a small school. Um, Are there any parents here who have kids with allergies? And if we could identify those specifically, maybe we could just you know, guard against the one thing instead of all the things. And that wasn't met well from the administrators in the meeting. They were trying to silence him. But because he is a social psychologist, because he has access to research, he actually went and started to look. And he found a study that had taken 600 children that were, they had all the markers, whatever to say, these kids are predisposed, they are high risk at being allergic to nuts and nut products. Mm -hmm. And they split that group in half. And 300 of those kids, they said, okay, we're going to follow the normal protocol where we tell parents, hey, keep all, all of those physical stressors to the immune system, all nut products away from your kid, period. Mm -hmm. For the other 300, they had this very measured and staged protocol at this age, start with this increment of like peanut powder on a food that they eat all the while under very strict medical supervision. It wasn't like some of the studies we read about in days gone by, like testing a bridge with, you know, live humans or (laughs) something like that. Uh And that then at five years of age, they went back and tested. Now all of these kids were potentially high risk already just by genetic markers and things. Mm -hmm. And the group who had been guarded, you know, and protected from this stimulus, they had a rate, it was over four times higher of kids who then were in fact, yes, allergic versus those who should have been that were taken through this measured stress protocol ended up only 3% of those who should have been out of that group ended up being allergic to nuts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting. It is. That even with a predisposition that with the right Right. introduction of stress that your body can learn to cope and overcome. Or your mind, as he would propose additionally. Yeah. Um, Point number two. Did you have anything else on that? Okay. Point number two. And I, I have recognized this. I'm not celebrating my wizardry by any means. This is just something I've recognized in my own life and profession is that concepts sometimes creep and maybe a different way to say that is that definitions over time sometimes creep 
So concepts like trauma and safety have been expanded so far since the 1980s that they're often employed in ways that are no longer grounded in legitimate psychological research. Grossly expanded conceptions of trauma and safety are now used to justify the overprotection of children of all ages, even college students who are sometimes said to need safe spaces and trigger warnings lest words and ideas put them in danger. That's right, yeah. Now, one of the very specific things uh, that, that he alludes to in the chapter are looking at, so originally trauma was purely a physical concept, mm -hmm. like physical, I got beaten with an implement or mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. and that this expanded to PTSD. Mm -hmm. But then in either instance, still the definition required, it was kind of like the reasonable man rule. Yeah. And anybody familiar with anything in legal terms would recognize this to say, in this application, it was to say, hey, a very super high percentage of people would react in a negative way to seeing their best friend killed in a war format. So PTSD. Yes. So it's expanded to it's mental trauma. Yeah, something traumatic outside the realm of human experience, I right. think is what he right. really emphasized. So and things so, like assault and, and, yes. and war and those types of things would have been the classically understood. Yes. And so the, then this perspective of drift is one that it reaches further down the perspective right. of stimuli, as well as an increase in width of things that it might encompass mm -hmm. to the point where just something that makes you uncomfortable is called trauma. And the danger of that is when the, you go look at research that gives you stats and figures about trauma, well, they're not talking about anything other than the definition they operated under. So all of that old research under a new definition becomes very dangerously misleading. Right. Yes. And it's interesting. They, they In this chapter, they talk about and examine the concept of this happening because both of the authors have connection to college campuses. Yes. One is a professor and one is in the legal realm having to do with college campuses. I can't remember. That sounds He's an right. attorney, and, and, mm -hmm. but it works. His focus is on college campuses. Anyway, this expansion of the idea and how it affects students in the collegiate atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking off camera with my sister too, because we all went to the same university. Like that was a time when it was like that going back to the first concept, that little inoculation of coming up against ideas that you don't agree with. I can remember right. the very first time a humanities professor not only said with his own words, but we were reading in these texts of stories of the biblical flood mm -hmm. that were, you could see them across cultures. It was not just the Bible that tells about this great flood. And I remember being like, what? How dare you? Right. Here I am, this, you know, Southern Baptist girl who was raised to believe that the Bible not only holds spiritual truth, but his historical document and all right. of this. And it never occurred to me to the, to be like, this is unsafe for me to hear right, this right. difference of opinion. Now, I was upset by it, and it gave me a lot to think about for a long time. And I'm thankful, honestly, looking back that it did. But, um, yeah, the, 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 I never felt like this is an unsafe classroom for me to be in. And I know right. that that's a kind of a tame example. Um, I mean, yes and no. Yes and no, because that is, in fact, the format of all 
healthy discourse. Yes. And he, and other materials, because I've watched some other things, listened to some other things from this guy who was a professor as well as all the other things that he's done. He talks about this grand shift in education where the educator's job at one point in time was to be the provocateur. Yes, exactly. To say the things, and it operated like a tennis match. Yes. With the student, and you back and forth it, but that we've transitioned into this day and age where you say something, nobody says anything until you get a call from administration that you're under review because somebody filed a complaint. Right, yeah. So a little bit of a shift from a yeah. school. The last concept for this chapter is safetyism, or the cult of safety, which is an obsession with eliminating threats, both real and imagined, to the point at which people become unwilling to make reasonable trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. Safetyism deprives people of the experiences that their anti-fragile minds need, thereby making them more fragile anxious, and prone to seeing themselves as victims. Yes. So again, this is where, this is so, I feel like, how dare you, right? book, how dare you call me out on this? But truly, I know that this is like such um, a, a mundane example, but our kids, with the amount of chores that they are asked to do, which is not much. It ain't much genuinely do feel victimized like that they are in some kind of labor camp where they you know life is unfair and those types of things and I can trace back in my own mind and my own memory of how I have raised them to um, just again that thing of wanting to not have any to keep them safe from mental distress Mm -hmm. with no mental stressors and you know the safetyism thing I read years ago a book on free range parenting um, where it, this, it was like sort of the last voice of like, let your kids go out and do things and be brave and have adventures and those right. sorts of things. And I fully believed it at the time, but then over time, speaking of concept creep, I become more and more convinced like, oh, it's, it's literally not even safe for the kids right. to take the puppies on a walk on right. the sidewalk in our own neighborhood. I'm guilty too. And I feel like I'm closer to the other end of the spectrum from you, but I'm guilty too. I look at things that I'm. I get panicky about most recently here we are at the end of virus and kids being the least susceptible to damage and all that. And our extrovert child gets invited to a birthday party and my butt clenches up and I'm like, (laughs) wait, but wait, all the things that could hurt her. Right. And pre-reading this even, thankfully I was able to just investigate a little back down, let her go. Everything's fine. Everything was good. We didn't act irresponsibly. She didn't come home sick, all that. But yeah, just to start letting your kids live. But I think, man, even as as impactful is to continue to examine our own lives and see all the places where we've protected ourselves yes. and not allowed ourselves to get tested and live and grow and be better. It doesn't mean you have to ever agree necessarily with what you've heard, but to hear it not as a threat, right? not as something to feel intimidated by, but to feel it as a challenge and go look and say, well, why do I believe right. what I believe and look it up and, and 
feel free to curse at the computer and say, see, you jackass, I looked it up and I'm right. Right, exactly. You're stronger because you were challenged and you look and you nestle in or you find an area where you were wrong. Right. And you fix and you don't spend the rest of your life wrong. Right, exactly. Yeah, I didn't even think about it, but yes, applying it to my own life, the number of choices I've made because of the safe choice, for sure. Yeah. That's It's hard to read this stuff, okay? It is, but it's very empowering. It is good. If you want to raise strong children or train yourself to be a stronger who-man, yes. I think, wow, what a great thing this material is. Absolutely. I can't wait to get into the rest of the book. Yeah. It's going to be a really good conversation. Speaking of resilience, we have a puppy whose bladder is apparently not It's that apparently not so resilient. We better so get to, to go in. So I look forward to going through more of this in the future. Yeah. And I would hope even that some of you might be inspired to read it yourself, to to mingle in the commentary with us on the Facebooks, all that stuff. Yeah. I think this is really strong material. Good. All right. Have an awesome today, would you? Please do. Bye. The Coddling of the American Mind is an excellent read. We will continue to review it. You should read it too. Don't be scared. <laughs>